This is The Guardian. Six or seven years ago, a lot of people felt very disconnected from politics and politicians. They felt politicians were self-serving and privileged, and those feelings had been hugely increased by the MPs' expenses scandal. The result, arguably, was Brexit, and a long spell of political turbulence followed. Now it feels like after all that, we might be back at square one. Party game. A super-rich chancellor who fails at photo opportunities and a backbench Tory MP facing allegations of sexual assault and cocaine use. Meanwhile, we're told by senior Conservatives that all that stuff is now irrelevant and we ought to focus all our attention on the war in Ukraine. Well, you know what? I think we can probably talk about both. I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian columnist Zoe Williams and Miata Farnborough, the Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation, who previously worked in the Cabinet Office for Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron and Nick Clegg. That's right. Wow, what a life. The whole For shebang. one so young. Uh, hello to you both. Hello. <laughs> I wanted to talk, first of all, about the fact that COVID, the pandemic, which we're sort of told by the people on high has largely come to an end and is, is now, has receded so much it's barely there, is still very much with us and is affecting all our lives. My kids' school timetables, for example, are all completely up in the air and we keep getting messages saying school might not be happening tomorrow. Life is still odd in that regard, isn't it? It's, what's weird is that because I went to France on Saturday and there's kind of, there's like lip service. You still have to have a vaccine passport. And everybody's got those. But it's like really, really obvious that nobody cares anymore whether they've got COVID. Nobody's testing. Nobody wants to test. It's like you were saying people are bound to be off work. But actually, if you're now having to pay for for tests, you're on minimum wage and you'd have to take the time off without getting remunerated. There's no way you're going to test if you don't have to. No, but there's a whole load of experiences, really important things in people's day-to-day lives that are completely up in the air again. I mean, EasyJet has just cancelled 200 flights over the Easter period, I read the other day. Schools, workplaces. Was that all COVID, though? I'm not sure. Apparently it's always because of COVID. So the British Chamber of of Commerce came out and said businesses seeing about 20% absent rates at the moment due to COVID. And this is what I think is completely mad because... Yes, let's live with COVID. I don't think anyone disputes that, but it does require you to have a minimum level of something. And for me, that testing is a really basic thing. I just don't understand. Free tests. Free tests. Or if you're not going to make tests free, then why on earth two quid? A test. So I, my son had um, COVID a couple of weeks ago and then we were like frantically trying to buy a test. You can only buy them, by the way, in the big pharmacist. And then it's like for five tests, £10 a box. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, we're a family of five. And I'm like, that's like £10 a pop. And if I'm thinking that, I'm like, who is who can afford to do this? And you speak to people on the continent and it's a fraction of the price. So yeah. if you're going to force people to pay for it, get the price down but the result is nobody tests and then we get council flights and school timetables in meltdown and yeah exactly there's definitely, the shops there's and- definitely a knock-on but i th- i mean i honestly think that the all the kind of temporary inconveniences you can work with the problem is going to be if long covid is like a significant factor because it's a nightmare i mean it's you know like two years basically without any function 
So, yeah, it's a disaster. We still don't know. We talked about the ending of free tests, which which plays into by far the, the biggest domestic political story right now, and I suspect for the next few years, which is the cost of living crisis, which we'll be talking about. First of all, though, we're going to talk about a contrasting impression of excess at the top of the Tories, the top of the Conservative Party, and in particular, the seemingly never-ending story of Partygate. And then we will move on to what some people call the cost of living crisis, but I think we maybe ought to call um, the mounting social emergency and where it sits perhaps in the midst of that impression of excess and privilege at the top. So, Partygate to start with. The Metropolitan Police have started to find people who work at the heart of government. There are a couple of examples from this week. I think we're now onto our third tranche of fines, but one set of fines was for a leaving due in the Cabinet Office in June 2020 which led to a fine for, uh, irony upon ironies, Helen McNamara, who was the Director General for Propriety, you're laughing me out, for Propriety and Ethics in the Cabinet Office. Uh, There's been another load of fines for the infamous party in April 2021 on the eve of Prince Philip's funeral, where the Downing Street swing was broken. And I think another tranche of fines relating to the leaving due for Kate Josephs, who was the head of the government's COVID-19 task force. Another howling irony. What we're still waiting for is an answer to the question of whether the Prime Minister or his wife are going to be fined. Clearly, Partygate hasn't gone away. Meanwhile, at the weekend, there was a huge amount of coverage of David Warburton, who happens to be my local MP. Oh, no way. Yes, in in Somerset. Um, And allegations of sexual misconduct and cocaine taking, which he denies, and his failure to declare a £100,000 loan from a Russian businessman. The Tories don't want us to talk about any of that. Partygate, general merriment so-called sleaze and all the rest of it they want us to focus on the war in ukraine they say that partygate is no longer important it's what they call fluff um this is jacob reese mogg making this point reasonably well on lbc we have a war going on in ukraine we have atrocities being carried out we have pictures coming through that show the enormous brutality of putin's army and what i was saying was that in the context of what is going on not just with ukraine but also with the cost of living crisis this is not the most important issue in the world having said that people should obviously obey the law obviously now he's saying that clearly for reasonably sort of self-serving reasons but there is a tension there isn't there i sort of feel it a bit that i i'm interested in partygate and i think partygate is important but you know i spent the time on the train getting here reading reports of the war in ukraine and watching videos about russian atrocities and it you know there's something a bit sort of imbalanced well look there's two there's there's two separate things going on right there's firstly there's the locus of one's own attention which as you say i'm not very interested the david warburton story kind of diverted me for a second but i'm not that interested it's set in context of the atrocities in buka but the other thing going on is that you're meant to feel slightly ashamed of raising it as though you're kind of trivial minded and you're and you know you're drawing attention away from the plight of the ukrainians with your trivial concerns and therefore you're failing them as an international community and as you say that does make you feel a bit uncomfortable because even if it's jacob bruce mogg saying it you're like i mean yes do you feel it yourself, Miata? Yeah, look, so I think there's a magnitude issue. And I think when you are seeing, you know, just the horrendous, horrendous situation in Ukraine, when you're thinking about people who are experiencing an almighty squeeze, it does feel trivial by comparison. It does. But, and this is a big but, I still think it matters. And for me, that, you know, that sense of gut anger that I felt, and I think a lot of people felt over Partygate, was 
genuine and real because for me it goes to the standards that we expect of our politician and it wasn't just you know it wasn't just the double standards around the parties and breaking the rules it was the lie it was the cover-up and I think it is unforgivable I think we have to not forget how the nation felt at that point when you just like actually we expect better of our politicians it's about something even more fundamental than that isn't it it's about the rule of law and the idea that the people who come up with the laws and are responsible for the laws have to obey them themselves because if they don't and I'm not sure whether this is a sort of unseemly point to make but I'm not sure then we can lecture the rest of the world about the rule of law and what a democracy is and how authority works and any of that. Well, look, it's an unseemly point to make if you're drawing any kind of equivalence between a military atrocity and a suitcase full of wine. But where it's not an unseemly point to make is where you're, you know, what it makes is an embarrassment of the government. It makes them embarrassing if they can't tell the truth and they can't obey their own rules. It makes them embarrassing in a domestic context and it makes it embarrassing to field them internationally. And I think that, in a sense, even though we're sort of embarrassed to talk about it with Ukraine going on, the war in Ukraine has really underlined how fundamentally unserious these people are. Yeah, unseriousness is a good word in that context. Yeah, I think it's that. And I also think, you know, alongside that war in Ukraine, there's a battle about the West and values and democracy and a whole set of things that are being kind of put alongside the thing that Putin represents. And I don't think you can stand for that and lie. I don't think you can stand for that and have double standards. I don't think you can stand for that and say the laws that we put in place don't count for us. I think it it makes it all shallower. It makes it harder to take the moral authority on yeah. the international stage. I mean, the public, it seems, still care about Partygate. There was a, a really good piece by Andrew Rawnsley in Sunday's Observer, which quotes material from a focus group that a pollster called James Johnson did. And he described one voter saying that the Tory leader was a buffoon, a joke, an idiot, and worst of all, a liar. You can't have a liar. Someone else called him a hypocritical clown, right? So this is still pretty searing language on the part of the public. Meanwhile, isn't yet another tension in this conversation. In Ukraine, we are told, the impression of Boris Johnson is very different. That He's acquired almost a heroic reputation. Vladimir Zelensky said in one of his speeches over the last few days, thank you, Boris, for the leadership, historical leadership. I'm sure of it. Can both things be true? That he's Mr Partygate and he's a pathetic clown, but as far as Ukraine is concerned, he's done okay? No, I mean, you've got to think, you've got to consider Zelensky's position here. He can't pick a fight with Putin and Boris Johnson at the same time. He has to maintain a very positive aspect towards the rest of the world so that everybody's united in, you know, condemning Russia. Can I say something? He's I not thought... going to start, yeah, he's yeah, not. Go on. I'm going to say something I never thought I'd say. <laughs> this is going to be good, go Which is... Because I don't think it's just the optics of how Zelensky is trying to play us and play his allies. I think to the credit of Boris Johnson, he has shown a version of him that I've never seen before. I think he has been more serious. I think he's been more statemently. I think he's been more outward facing. I think he has shown leadership, which I never, ever thought I'd say. And the question I have in my head is, is it an act or is it a real thing? Yeah, I mean, I'd want to see some concrete iteration of it, though. I mean, what... Well, that he was very quick as regards supplying military assistance to Ukraine, quicker than a lot of other leaders in the so-called West. He just was. Like quicker, like, a, yeah, like what, 36 what, hours quicker? That's what quicker? Zelensky says. That's what Zelensky says. He clearly has many flaws, which I don't think has gone away, because I don't think you could have done everything you've done through your political career and suddenly become a hero. But the thing I have sort of taken away is that Act or not, I wish we had this version of Boris Johnson 
all the time because as long as he's our prime minister I'd much rather have this version of Boris Johnson than the thing that we've seen over the last 18 months and I don't know whether maybe it has been a wake-up call and he's sort of upped his game or maybe it's a big charade I don't know I think domestic politics though is just is too complicated for him that's the point right War in Ukraine, notwithstanding the awfulness of what's gone on, right, it has clear moral outlines. He can deal with yeah, that. Yeah. Whereas when you, if you get into the social emergency of, of cost of living or energy policy or levelling up or any number of things, that just seems to me to confound him. He well, can't yeah, but, do it. But, but, you know, if you look at the way the refugee situation has been handled, he doesn't actually step up. I'd want to see a decision that, that costs him something before I would say he's been a good leader at this time. The situation with visas and the backlogs is really disgusting and shaming. So, no, I'm really I'm not impressed by him at all. We will return to this. This is a, all the potential of a conversation that may run and run. I wanted to talk <laughs> about something that sits under this impression of excess and wealth and all that, which Partygate sort of symbolises. The premise of Brexit, as far as a fair few people who voted for it were concerned, was that politicians were out of touch with the real struggles of people in their lives. And as I said earlier, here we are six years later, and it feels reasonably similar to that. There is a sense of being back at square one. Boris Johnson used that resentment against politicians yeah. and that sort of anti-elite politics, ironically for someone who went to Eton and has a classic <laughs> degree from Oxford, right? But he used that to his advantage. He definitely rode that wave. And now it seems he's on the receiving end of a lot of those sort of sentiments and opinions. I worry a lot as well about public cynicism. I mean, it's a cynical age, but politics can't really work in an atmosphere of huge public cynicism. And I worry that Sunak pretending to fill up his car with petrol or flying off to have his Easter holidays in California in the midst of a cost of living crisis, Boris Johnson and his wallpaper and party gate and all that. It just turns people off generally. And I think they sort of tar Keir Starmer and the Labour front bench with the same brush. Well, and we end yeah, up back where we were before. So my favourite line about the whole 2019 election campaign was Anthony Barnett saying, or somebody in Open Democracy saying, if Boris Johnson made everybody hate politicians and then gave them a chance to walk away from it. So if you look at that campaign, it was all Brexit's done, this is over, you can forget us. And it wasn't just, it was exactly as you say, an attempt, not an attempt to kind of, you know, rehabilitate politics, but to make it so disgusting that there was nothing to like and nothing to hope for and nothing to dream about. And he did that quite well. If he's really pulled that off, well, then he'll be that immune. Is quite scary. He'll be immune, won't he? Yeah. So you mean you just you just assure people that their exceedingly low expectations of politicians are entirely correct? Yeah, yeah. And therefore, you can spend as much money as you like on expensive wallpaper and suitcases full of wine, and fly off for your holidays wherever you fancy, and no one cares. Are we? Are we there? So I think we are. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't think we are. Well, so I think our biggest risk is disdain and apathy at the moment. Because the thing that we're seeing. I think is completely horrendous. I think that some of the stuff the government has done, some of the things that I think the Prime Minister stands for is absolutely atrocious. But people are like, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I worry about cynicism. And they're all the same. But I worry about cynicism. But having said that, if you go back through all that stuff from the focus group, there's a clear moral sense there. Those people clearly expect something better from the people in charge. They do, but uh, the question then you ask is, would you vote that person? So I've had, you know, had lots of conversations with people, and they were like, "Oh, he's an absolute charlatan, but he's our charlatan," and that you know, oh, but they're no better. Really? And what? Can, I can see the Labour are no better because I've heard that. 
But do people actually say he's our charlatan? Are they, what, are yeah, they happy with that? Yeah, because we know where we are. We know where we are with him. He doesn't pretend to be something different. Because I keep having this conversation because I can't believe it. I'm like, you can't see everything that he's done, which is why, by the way, I think Partygate is important. And the thing I always sort of, whenever I talk to sort of conservative um, MP, I was like, we, the people who stood up and said, we deserve better than this. I had so much respect for that, you know, put that underneath the table and try and make it go away. What does it say about our politics? And what does it say about the standards that we think the public can tolerate and should tolerate? And it feels like we're at a tipping point where this matters. Okay, I'll accept tipping point. I don't think it's got so awful that, that there's no way back and that public cynicism is sort of rampant and you and you can't turn it around. I don't buy that. Let's pause there. In a minute, we'll talk about the very contrasting reality of the cost of living crisis, mounting social emergency as it continues to affect people, um, the poorest people, obviously, but also people higher up the income scale. Welcome back. A few weeks ago, the focus of the news, quite rightly, in the wake of the Chancellor's Spring Statement, was on the poorest people in the UK. But there are other aspects of the cost of living crisis. It's right that that we talk about the gravity of that crisis for people on the lowest incomes. In their case, it really is a social emergency. But there's a, also a conversation about how much it's going to affect or is affecting people further up the income scale. People who've probably got used to thinking of themselves as secure and relatively safe I want to talk a bit about that and its possible political effects. And I think we've already seen one, mm. which is what's happened to Rishi Sunak. Yeah. A matter of weeks ago, Rishi Sunak was still the next leader of the Conservative Party. You know, it feels like he's the first political casualty of a possibly changed public mood. All these things that have happened that are rich with symbolism, you know, can he or can't he use contactless payment in a garage that wasn't his car that he filled up he's holidaying in santa monica we're told he's just made a hundred thousand pound donation to winchester college for bursaries for people who can't necessarily afford the fees i don't know whether that changes the morals of that or not probably slightly not at all not oh, that's at all. good not remotely go on oh for god's sake because i tweeted that yesterday and but i felt listen, bad and deleted it listen, so, so come on stiffen my spine a he's bit he's the here. chancellor he's just done the spring statement he people are going to be really really suffering for a really long time if he has a hundred grand to give away he needs to do it in such a way that it at least acknowledges where people are nobody's sitting there thinking i wish my son could go to westminster winchester winchester Winchester. sorry come on they're thinking i wish my son could have some shoes i mean this is what we're talking about so it's the most unbelievably toned interesting question then right do you think he does this knowing full well it looks awful or is he so separated from people's everyday lives by dint of his family's huge wealth that he wouldn't even see that that's a potentially toxic thing to do. Actually, don't know. Do you know him? Yeah, I, I do. I do. So I went to uni with him. Wow. Um, no, uh, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know him quite well? Uh, yeah, so he was in my sort of friendship group. He was in the year below, but yeah, we, we were in the sort of same friendship group. And, and I just... You got drunk with Rishi Sunak. <laughs> I have had a few drinks wow. with him. Go uh, on, keep going. So, uh, so here's the question. Yes, does he know or doesn't he know? I think he's just really out of touch and I think he's not a bad guy and so I have really struggled to get my head around some of the decisions that he's making 
the only conclusion I've come to is that he is just so removed from that world. Like, if, if you don't really know what it feels like to have to make that decision between, like, not eating today, not feeding you... And you can see it on paper, but you can't taste, you can't feel it in your gut in a way that means that you can make decisions that you can rationalise without feeling that that you're just doing something. And do you, think that, do you think that sets him apart from other MPs? I mean, he's hardly the only wealthy MP. No, he's much richer than every other MP. His wife, I mean, his wife is Apart said to be maybe worth, Jacob is, is worth more than the Queen. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a lot of money. But can I just ask, did he wear like 200 Are you on the show about that? <laughs> did, did he wear, wear like, Gucci loafers? Did he wear like sliders worth 180 quid at university? <laughs> did he drink <laughs> Bollinger for breakfast? <laughs> he didn't. He didn't. Did he have a silk duvet cover? <laughs> did he have his Hebrew's coffee cup? <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was quite normal by the standards of Oxford, which um, says it all. <laughs> <laughs> All this is particularly relevant now. We're talking on the day that the national insurance tax rise comes in, which means 1.25p extra in the pound being paid by people who pay national insurance. Um, So, you know, that that again brings home the symbolism of the person responsible for all this being the same person who, it seems, is rich beyond the dreams of avarice. I wonder whether you can join Partygate to the allegations against David Warburton to... Sunak's wealth and all that and you and there's something there isn't there in terms of optics and maybe a couple more of these stories and this might start to acquire quite a lot of weight it's not a good time to sort of be a presenting this face to the public I feel in the like midst of this incipient cost of living crisis I feel like you're kind of nostalgic about the 90s about the early 90s eternally, when suddenly yeah, me too. but that you know that point at which every single thing the conservatives did just fed into the same sleaze narrative they couldn't do anything without it seeming incredibly sleazy and corrupt I'm not sure I mean and that I mean no, that no, but, but, no, but another, you know, another you, one you, another you're one, wanting no. it to feed into a kind of picture of excess but I don't think excess, excess I don't hedonism. think excess and flamboyance I don't think excess and, and hedonism are really the theme here. I think hypocrisy is the theme. Excess and hedonism is quite fun. Nobody hates the the sight of somebody else enjoying themselves. No, I, I disagree. I think excess, excess. <laughs> I disagree. So I, I hate people so, enjoying but themselves. But the suitcase full of wine and the wine fridge in the midst of Partygate, right, acquires a real resonance if people can't afford to pay their rent and are aware when they're going around the supermarket of counting every last penny. That's what I mean by excess. Or flying off to California for your spring holidays. But but this is it. I think your organising principle is hypocrisy and, you know, cluelessness, rather than... Although, so for me, I think it's just that sense of out of touch, because apparently all the polling suggests that out of touch is resonating, and it's just like two different lives, two different worlds, which has always sort of been the case. But I think when people are feeling so raw when it's so tough just the sense that there's this bunch of people that are like on another planet and don't get it don't get you don't get your life i think that's the thing that's toxic now let's talk about this in the context of the sheer reach of the so-called cost of living crisis because politically this may get really difficult for the conservatives precisely because it affects people Mm -hmm. higher up the income scale. Me, I know that you probably have figures you can hit us with that illustrate this point. Yeah, so we, we did a sort of an analysis last month that essentially looked at the people who essentially are struggling, struggling with day-to-day, struggling to stay afloat. 24 million people, so 34% of the population we put under this bracket of struggling to stay afloat. They're having to make day-to-day sacrifices, you know, whether it's deciding I can't afford to buy that shoe for my kid, I can't afford to do this. 
And for me, that's like a really staggering number. And, you know, to, to be fair, it's the thing that I think Theresa May started to get with her just about managing. It's like there's this cohort now. And for me, that's where the politics becomes difficult for the government, because I think, you know, the, the bottom end has always been the most tragic story, but they're immune to it. It's not their voters. I think as you move up, that cohort, that squeeze middle that they were, you know, in red wall areas, they appeal to the combination of the two together I think creates a big problem. I was wondering, I was going to ask what it meant generationally. I mean, how hard pensioners were being hit? Because if you look at the spread of Conservative voters, they're relying very heavily on that generation. So this is working age. Primarily, we're seeing it. Kids, the thing I still can't believe is that half of kids are in households that are struggling, which oh is just gosh. absolutely phenomenal. Absolutely chilling, isn't it? Um, up to now, I think they have protected pensioners with the triple lock. I think what's quite interesting is, you know, they didn't uprate pensions with um, inflation because they didn't uprate benefits with inflation. So there's going to be a bit of a squeeze. But for me, it's that story of the working age struggling. That, that will be the story that I think will sort of shift our politics. But people who up to now, in a lot of particularly conservative politicians' minds, they'll have thought of as being aspirational and thinking of themselves as being, you know, at least aiming at being comfortably off and all the rest of it. And the sheer sort of shock very often to, to some of those people of, of really feeling this precariousness and, th- and this anxiety will have political effects, clearly, even in the May elections. I mean, this will be a factor in the May elections, wouldn't it? It should do. It should do. And I think it will do, you know. And for me, I'm always advocating and campaigning for those at the bottom end because I think they've been voiceless as, you know, social security and everything has been kind of hammered away over the decade. But I, I think there's an interesting coalition that's about to be built between that squeeze middle and those at the sharp end of, you know, both things like a social security system that isn't working for them because some of them will be claiming some benefits, but also, you know, earnings that have pretty much stagnated for getting on for 20 years and it is that combined story that is their story that I think is like the defining issue and if they can find a collective voice I think that's the way that starts to shift our politics. When Miata said that half of kids in the UK are in these struggling households Mm. your your eyes widen like wow yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still shocking. It's isn't unbelievable. It? And you speak to so many poverty campaigners who struggle so hard to animate this issue for the news. And you know, it's like people are always like, "How does it get? How does it get reach or cut through or whatever?" But but they don't. They're not talking about reach or cut through. They're, how do you get a journalist interested? You know, the media can be so callous, and they've tried to animate it so many ways. You know, this is how much shopping you could buy on this many benefits. But I think it is getting to the point where everybody can see how bad that is. I, w- I want to move on on that hopeful note sure. to something um, <laughs> sure. that is happening as we, as we speak, which is uh, <laughs> the government's uh, slightly delayed announcement of its supposed energy strategy. Boris Johnson has already given a hint of what's going to be in that. We can hear a bit of it now. As we did during COVID, we will make sure we look after people to the best of our ability. Now, we've got to be frank with people. There's a limit to the amount of taxpayers' money we can simply push towards trying to deal with uh, global uh, energy price spikes. But what we can do is make sure that we fix some of the long-term problems. And I think it was a great mistake not to invest long-term in nuclear power. And I'll be saying a lot more about that. Miata, 
this energy strategy will at least partly be framed in the context of the cost of living crisis, won't it? And the idea of sort of long-term fixes for energy price spikes and all of that. Yeah, Is it, your sense that it's going to be convincing? Well, it has to speak to the cost of living. It has to be about energy security. It has to be about guarding us against these sorts of shocks. And so the question will be, does it do enough? And for me... If it doesn't, and all the indications, because there's apparently a bond fight between number 10 and number 11 around... No, really? Yeah, around investment in... Falling out with the Treasury? (laughs) No, home installation. Uh, So, you know, we've been banging on about, you know, if you were to do a mass upgrade scheme of homes, which you could do over the course of, you know, four years, invest 12 billion get about four or five million homes targeted at the poorest homes. That's the way in which you reduce the cost of energy. Number 10 are trying to get more money for it. Treasury have blocked it. So I know it's not going to have a big component of that. I fear it's going to try and lean into, there'll be some stuff on new nuclear, but it will look into things like fracking, which are not really the solution. And actually, you know, one of the quickest ways, look at onshore wind, you know, look at renewables, because we know we can bring them on stream quite quickly. So I think there's an opportunity for the government to actually do some stuff that will bite potentially the next sort of three, four years. Whether it does it or not, I think is another matter. To end, we talked about this impression the government is giving out of sort of privilege and brazen wealth and, and hypocrisy, as Zoe said a moment ago. And it sort of is in political trouble domestically. I suppose two questions arise on that. Firstly, looking ahead, can they get through this and still come out on top? And we are talking, after all, about the, the Western world's most successful vote-winning machine in history and all the rest of it. And also there's another point of tension in this, which is that certainly in modern history, you only get Labour governments elected when people are feeling secure enough to take the risk and hard times, it is said. To be honest, I don't, I just I, I completely reject that as a, as, a, as a pattern find. Tell me why. Because It doesn't really stand up because 45 we, we only, wouldn't have happened. Exactly. We only ever get a Labour government as a moonshot. It's once a generation. It's when it, Labour comes together but promising you... I like the idea of like, a Labour government as a moonshot. Yeah, yeah. It's, but it's a once-in-a-generation event. Imagine Keir Starmer on the moon. T- <laughs> I actually can't imagine him on the moon. It's, it's like it's all the other places. Another, I can't imagine another, him. Another large step for the Labour Party. No, he's, exa- he's exactly the kind of person who would be an astronaut. He keeps himself in fine health <laughs> so and he doesn't on. need was, much company. But anyway, it's not that people need to feel secure and they'll take a punt. It's that the Labour really has to kind of encapsulate their dreams for what could be possible. And it won't happen if they don't do that. I think it's all to play for. I think it's all to play for. I think you can't underestimate the government. And, you know, if Boris is still in, which I think there's a chance he might be, he is a phenomenal, phenomenal campaigner. I think if there is, and this is not a party political uh, point, I think if there is kind of justice out there, I don't think you can do Partygate and everything else. I don't think you can have ballsed up the pandemic in response in the way you did. I don't think you can have seen the cost of living crisis are not acted and be elected again. Like if there is justice, that shouldn't happen, but it may well happen. And one of the reasons it might happen is that if people don't think there's an alternative, and that is about Labour defining itself in terms that people feel that there is hope, that there is something worth voting for rather than staying at home and saying that you're all as bad as each other. On that cheery note, let's all <laughs> nip out and buy a suitcase full of wine to tentatively celebrate. Thank I've you. I've actually got a wine fridge. <laughs> I thought you were going to say I've actually brought a suitcase for the wine but it's only Wednesday thank you both for joining us Miata and Zoe thanks for having us thank you and thank you to you for listening if you enjoyed today's episode which I know you did please make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts and even better leave us a review 
but only if it's a good one. Um, and if you enjoy listening to The Guardian's Jonathan Friedland discussing US politics every Friday, you'll want to subscribe to his new podcast, as Johnny's show won't be available on this podcast. So to get all of the latest news from Washington and beyond, search for Politics Weekly America and hit subscribe. That's Politics Weekly America out every Friday. This episode was produced by Natalie Katena, music was by Axel Kakutier, and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. We'll be back, having recovered from our suitcase full of wine, next Thursday. <laughs>